Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my amazing guests, our goal is to help you take your life and your business to the next level. Ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast really is a must-listen, and it is because of my guests. So whether you're tuning in for entrepreneurial tips, career advice, or personal development strategies... Get ready to turn inspiration into action, challenges into triumphs, and dreams into reality. Today, I am really excited. I'm actually kind of nervous because I am joined by James Bristol. He is the visionary leader behind Argonon, which is one of the UK's thriving TV production companies. And in this episode, James joins us to share his wealth of experience in steering his team through a spectrum, and there's a bunch of them. A spectrum of challenges from the credit crunch and terror attacks to recessions, natural disasters, and pandemics. One of the natural, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the natural disasters, of course, was Hurricane Katrina. I live between Hurricane Katrina and Rita. I was here for that. So James joins us to unveil insights from his book, The Flexible Method, Prepare to Prosper in the Next Global Crisis. And drawing from 16 lessons learned in the trenches, of real-world challenges, he provides practical examples of turning disasters into opportunities. Now, this book is not just a dry checklist. It's an intimate account from a recognized thought leader who is offering a first-hand look at the strategies that led to astonishing successes in the entertainment industry. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio, James, and thank you for sending me your book. It's in front of me as we speak. Thank you very much for having me, Denise. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Um, yes, I am based today, I'm speaking to you from London, but actually my business is 50% US, 50% UK. We have offices in uh, Hollywood, uh, in Los Angeles, and in New York, and also now in Oklahoma. We set up a business in Oklahoma in the middle of the credit, uh, sorry, in the middle of the pandemic, would you believe it? Uh, and also we have very busy, busy offices in the UK, and we sell our TV and film shows all around the world. So I'm delighted to be here with you. It's so great to connect with my American friends. Um, and I'm really honoured and looking forward to our conversation. I am as well. I read the book. I've had the book for a while. You sent it to me, I think, a couple of months ago. And I read it when it landed here. And I went, okay, should I be scared? This guy knows everything. I'm a little bit nervous and honoured that you're here. But then I read it again this weekend. And you ought to see it. I've got sticky notes all over it. I've got index cards on it. It's a fascinating book. What is so fascinating, though, is your story. So do you mind? You're just taking a few minutes and you kind of touched on it. But tell people a bit about you and what prompted you to do these amazing things that you do. And do you sleep? I don't think you do. <laughs> um, yes, I do sleep. I really badly need to, I try to sleep eight hours, would you believe it, which a lot of uh, um, leaders would think is extraordinary and, uh, and uh, excessive, perhaps. But I need my sleep. Um, I like to work and play hard, um, and I also love to rest. Uh, you know, that work-life balance uh, piece is so important for me. 
And I do think leadership now in the modern world is so much about um, looking at the world, including our families, our friendship circles, our financial security, our spiritual well-being, and our professional life in the round. It's all about 360. So the idea that you know you can be perfect at all times, that you can always be 100% on your game, that you can always be a best father, husband, partner, boss, friend, 100% of the time, that's just not possible. You have to be realistic. But, you know, I talk about this in the book. I like to win gold medals. Uh, you know, I didn't get into this industry to um, not try and do my best work and come out with exceptional programs and win awards. We've won more than 130 awards, ranging from Emmys to BAFTAs in the UK to Royal Television Society Awards. Um, but you can't win gold every day. So I regard myself um, really as a bit of an athlete. And I think it can be helpful for people who are in leadership roles to think of themselves in that way. Because if you think about an athlete, let's take a track runner. They don't expect to win gold every single time they race and they don't expect to win gold every single day, but they do set themselves aspirations and have ambitious plans. And that requires quiet time, then starting to prepare, then building up the work over a period of weeks or even months got your eye on the target, you know that at the end of this period of several weeks or months of training, you're going to go for gold. And then on the day itself, you are really well mentally prepared, you're well fed, you're well eaten, you're probably a bit nervous and those nerves are useful because they'll help you hit your, you know, your cutting edge. And then you run the race. And of course you want to come out on top if you can, but it is a process. And I think it's very important and it behoves all of us in leadership roles, especially in the world that we live in now, which is so tough, that we have to also treat ourselves with kindness because you can't win a gold medal every single day. You have to prepare and plan and be careful and then you will be successful. Okay, we're done. You just told me everything I needed to know that the audience needed to know. That was brilliant. Thank you. I was taking notes. But you're right. It's We all want to... I don't sleep much. That's why I asked. I just have not... It's not one of my skills. And my mom would say when I woke up, oh, crap, she's awake. The devil's running or something like that. But, you know, it's it's interesting when you say to prepare because we cannot be perfect all the time, all day. And we were talking in the green room about, you know, time is basically a construct, in my opinion. And people, I'll hear people say, and I'm sure you do, too, and you've probably heard this a lot during all the, the challenges that you have dealt with, people say, oh, I'm having a bad day. No, you're not. You're having a bad five minutes. You can pass through it, but you're not having a bad day unless you're dying. That's a bad day. So mindset, you know, mindset is so, so important. And you just delivered the perfect mindset. But it takes a lot of work. I've done a lot of work on myself over the years. I really believe in talking in being in touch with yourself and your feelings and your history we we all have you know challenges in our life we all grow up in different parts of the world and whether it's emotional or, or uh, financial or uh, career opportunities or not going to the right school whatever it might be you know though I, I kind of the way I talk about it is in life we dealt a set of cards and those cards are uh, they're not perfect but they are your set of cards and those include in what era are you born? What kind of financial background do you come from? What do your parents, if you have both your parents, what do they do? 
What kind of school do you go to? What are the pressures that are put on you? What opportunities come your way? What opportunities do you miss? We don't, obviously, all, we're not all successful at everything. And for me, it's really important to, to come to realize that those cards that you have been dealt are a blessing. And they won't include everything. They may not include making vast fortunes or having an absolutely stellar family life or having uh, the ability to win a high jump race. But they will be unique attributes, which are gifts. And they are gifts from your parents, they're gifts from your upbringing, they're gifts for we who are so lucky who live in the West. We see what's happening in other parts of the world where it is so challenging, particularly right now. So for me, it's really important to realize what, what are the cards, what are the unique cards that you have been dealt and do your very, very best to play those cards with integrity, with commitment, with drive, and keep your eye focused in that way, because then you will do something exceptional, because everybody, every human being on this planet has something exceptional to give to the world. Absolutely. And one thing that I hear a lot, and this has happened with me, where I've had to sit down and say, Denise, where are you unique? Why are you here? What are you doing? What's your purpose? And once I started listening to other people, because I didn't know where my unique soul was, I just didn't. And then I started paying attention to what other people are saying to me and about me. I went, oh, what I think is very simple is not for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's important perhaps as well to say that, you know, that uniqueness doesn't have to be um, you're going to become president and change the world. Um, or indeed that you're going to you know, run some huge multinational corporation and make millions and millions of dollars. It could be quite simply that there is one human being in your life that really needs your wisdom and kindness and just for you to be there and listen. One of the things that I try to do every day is a random act of kindness. Um, but what I mean by that is try to do something, whether it's you know, gifting a small amount of money to somebody who's homeless on the street. We have terrible homelessness problems in the West altogether, or whether it's um, picking up something on, you know, some trash that you find on the street that's upsetting. And, you know, obviously we don't want our cities to be dirty and have trash everywhere. Um, or whether it's doing something for somebody where they just need, you know, for you to be there for them and just listen or make them a cup of coffee. Uh, just a small thing that makes you realize that you are um, on the world, in the world for a reason, and that there are people who are less fortunate than us. We all have good times and we all have bad times. When we're having a tough five minutes you talk about or a tough moment, isn't it wonderful when someone reaches out? In fact, I talk about this in the book. Um, it is extraordinary, isn't it? How you know, we've just been through the, the worst pandemic in our lives. When the whole world back in March 2020, when we were all entering lockdowns, we were all facing an existential threat. I mean, I run an independent production group and we were faced with 12 months of no production. And when you don't produce, you have no income coming in. And we have hundreds of people who work for us, both in the US and the UK. And if we've got no production going on, we don't have any income and people can't pay their bills. They can't pay their mortgages. They can't put food on the table for the kids. But you know, what was so extraordinary and just to kind of round off this point is that when we reached out, both across our industry and outside our industry, whether it's governments or just you know local communities, people were there to help. 
is incredibly heartwarming. And although the pandemic was very brutal and painful, and my goodness, we all have our war wounds, nonetheless, there was an incredible coming together. And that community spirit, I think, was really quite remarkable and gives you faith, actually, in human nature. Absolutely. I watched it here. You know, I'm a web developer by trade, and I do a certain amount of social media marketing. And what I noticed was that our educators in the United States, grade school, uh, high school, they just said, we're not taking this. We're not going to shut these schools down. If that, We're going to educate our kids. And they found Zoom. They did whatever they could to get these kids to you know, the computers that they needed to work from home. They really worked at it. And I and I noticed them a lot. And then I noticed other people taking advantage of what was being taught to them by these educators. And I went, okay. I would also notice that many people just kind of ran and hid, no matter how big their their customer base was or their company was, they just, they froze. They didn't know what to do. They didn't say, hey, pick up the phone, call people and say, we're still here. This is how you can reach us. This is what's going on. We're going to rework how we operate. Hang in there. We're here for you. Those are the companies that failed because they didn't immediately say, hey, we're still here. Yeah, I mean, in, in my book, it's it's a 16 uh, uh, chapter book with 16 lessons. And each of the chapters is very detailed. And it is a kind of manual, if you like. I wrote it to be useful. Um, and despite the title, Prepare to Prosper in the Next Global Crisis, and we, we do now live, I think, in a time when crises are basically coming thick and fast, and then that's not going to change anytime soon. However, there are these lessons which I developed with my team in my company. We started way back when in the, during the credit crunch, and we've really um, fine-tuned it, hence I wanted to write the book. But you do find that there are lots of methods for coping with these challenging times. And at the top of that is really good, authentic communication. And I interviewed many people in the book from different leadership roles, from different sectors, both in the US and the UK and elsewhere. People who are sometimes running small companies, sometimes running giant multinationals and in, po in politics, in agriculture, in uh, hospitality, gyms, all the different sectors that were really uh, impacted by uh, recent you know, COVID and other crises. And what was remarkable is that without exception, all of the leaders demonstrated what you were just talking about, which is authentic communication. We are here for you. We do not have all the answers, but we as a management team, we're listening to government, we're listening to the doctors, we're talking to our colleagues around the industry. We're looking for ways to come through this. And it will be nerve wracking for all of you. We know that there were mental health issues. We know that people were frightened for their own health, for elderly parents, worried about putting food on the table for the kids. All of those were very, very real, especially when people were locked down. And uh, in my industry, a lot of people are in their 20s and 30s and they're living in, you know, like small apartments with, you know, three or four students or young people working in kind of cut off from their families, sometimes with not very good Wi-Fi. You know, that was very frightening. So it felt very, very important for us, starting with me, you know, I'm the boss of this company. You have to lead from the top. You have to model a certain kind of behavior. And I started from day one, sending out a daily email saying, we're here for you. We want to listen. We do not have all the answers. We're not going to try and blag our way through this and fake it because, you know, we will very quickly lose credibility. 
but we are in it together and we've got your back and we will find a way. And lo and behold, we did. And that makes sense. Listen, when this was going on, I was actually emailing people that I knew in companies. I hadn't built their websites. I just kind of knew them on Facebook. And I would say, listen, I can see that you're not talking with your people. May I make a suggestion? And a lot of people just said, oh, my God, I didn't even think about that. We're so worried about this, that, and the other. So I kind of became an evangelist there for about a week, contacting people that I'd never met before, but saying, you need to show up. You know, I'm a web developer. I'm online all the time. This is what I'm seeing, and this is what I'm not seeing. You need to show up. And most of them said, oh, thank you. And some of them didn't respond at all. But somebody needed to say, hey, pay attention. One of the most remarkable interviewees in, in my book uh, is a man called David Holt, who is the first Native American mayor in of an American city in Oklahoma City. And he's 40. He's a very young man. And there was Oklahoma City. Obviously, he's a Republican in a Republican state. And the governor of Oklahoma didn't particularly want to do anything too much about COVID. But David Holt felt very strongly that he's got a very diverse community. They're quite young. It's a growing, burgeoning city, Oklahoma City, with a lot of tech companies moving in and quite a lot of people moving there from the coast because you can get really nice houses for a fraction of the cost. So he felt very, very strongly that he had to protect his people. I mean, let's be honest, the job of a politician, their first role is to keep their people alive. So what he did is he kind of went against uh, what the governor of the state was saying. And he said, Look, I am going to put Oklahoma City into lockdown. I'm going to shut down bars and restaurants. I'm going to insist on sheltering at home. And he did actually impose a total lockdown for a period. And you know what? And it's kind of terrible to have to monitor these things in this way. But in the case of COVID, it's relevant. The fatality rate in Oklahoma City because he protected people, because he kept them at home, was one of the lowest of any city in the US. And how did he do that? It's because he spoke on a regular basis with his people. He kept people on side. He made his people think, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I'm here for you. He spoke, not all the time, but he spoke in a genuine way. He made some speeches. He did some kind of connection on a regular basis on Twitter, now X. But he made sure that he was available and that he was communicating in an authentic way, saying, I don't have all the answers, but I've got your back and we're working on this together. And people respected that and people did stay home and they didn't have mass COVID outbreaks. And as a result, the fatality levels, terrible though that is, were low. So, you know, this authentic communication, putting your people first, which is again, another chapter in my book, is absolutely critical. And in the case of a pandemic, it will save lives. It does. I know there was a lot of talk you know, I'm about 100 miles away from New Orleans, and there was a lot of talk that in Louisiana, at least, the epicenter was New Orleans. Well, it had to be. Tourists are everywhere. They're coming from all over the world. There was no way we could have avoided that over there, I don't think. But it was an interesting time, and like you, I don't believe that it's going to ever fully go away. We're going to always have crises of some description, and Let's start with part one. Because let's go back to book because I keep looking at this. Let's go to the book, prepare. The first chapter is prepare. And you say that disasters can be predictable. So game plan against your organizations in calm times and head signs of the coming 
head, yeah, head signs of the coming storm. Keep your business continuity and disaster recovery plans up to date. You would think that people say, oh, yeah, I got that. I'm, I'm good. But they're not. They're, they're really not, which shocks me. It's like, oh, well, we survived it. It's passed. No, it's not. Another one, something is going to always come to our shores. Always. And it's always going to take us by surprise, whether it's a giant hurricane or, uh, you know, the wildfires in California or indeed the credit crunch when suddenly there's this mass crisis about real estate. Who'd have thought? Um, Excuse me, unfortunately, these things are just happening all the time. So, yeah, prepare is the first chapter in the book. And in fact, I end the book with prepare, because once you've been through all the process of putting these 16 lessons into practice, and believe me, they work, but they're not easy. Some of them are quite painful and quite difficult, but they do work. And then once you've been through and you come out the other side, you must prepare again, because the next crisis is inevitably coming. So one of the key things I think to do with crisis planning to prepare yourself is to build a flexible mindset to make sure that your entire team is aware of the fact that not everything is going to be tickety-boo every single day of the week forevermore, <laughs> to be prepared that sometimes shocking things do happen. And therefore, we've got to make sure that we've got good communication, make sure you've got groups, whether it's online or in WhatsApp or whatever, the groups where you can communicate. Make sure you've done your disaster planning. You do have to have regular meetings. You need to, It's not very nice to invite your team into a meeting. So today we're going to talk about what happens when the next crisis happens. We've only just got over the last one. You think, God, do we really have to do another one? But actually, yes, you do. You need to make sure that you're talking on a regular basis about how can we make sure, for example, that all of our data is backed up. Uh, it's so extraordinary. You're, you know, you're a techie, Denise. You know this. It's incredible how many colleagues work where they don't back up that data. And they're so, therefore, so vulnerable. Uh, it could be that one of your premises, you know, gets flooded tomorrow. That could happen anytime soon. And then what's going to happen then if your server is flooded? You will have no way to function. So, yes, preparation is absolutely critical. Uh, and that's... Uh, it's difficult because when you're feeling calm and you're feeling good and in a safe place, which, you know, we do, I think, broadly speaking, somewhat now, especially, you know, we're not in the height of COVID. It's quite easy to rest on your laurels and think, oh, thank goodness, that's gone away. But actually, the, the wise ones, they're already planning for the next crisis because there will be one. There's always something. And of course, right now, I don't know about y'all. People seem to be in a bad mood generally. And I have come to the conclusion that global, it's a global thing, I think, that we're all just experiencing a low level sense of dread. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to survive the last one. We just don't know. And that's no way to live. So what you're talking about is do your best to be prepared and calm yourself a little bit yeah. make sure that you've got everything <clears throat> excuse me in order yeah i'd like to speak to that denise because it's so common um and you know i i don't have my own children but i have six nephews and nieces and four godchildren who i'm very close to who are sort of 30 and down um and they quite often ask me because i play an important role in their lives they quite often ask me you know uncle james was it as bad as this when you were growing up and I have to kind of think once or twice when I answer that, because, yeah, we had some struggles and some difficult stuff that happened. Um, but in a funny sort of way, I don't think the world was quite as 
Um, no, certainly wasn't, wasn't as mediatized as it is now. So we weren't hearing every day about, you know, there's a volcanic eruption in Indonesia today or there's some terrible train crash in India. You know, we hear about this stuff every day. So, so where we started earlier on in the conversation, I think managing our own mental health is very important. And one of the things I think that I try to do on a regular basis, and I really recommend, is taking regular digital detox. We should not, in my opinion, allow ourselves to be inundated with noise and that and bad news every single day. It's very tempting to have that kind of sc scrolling news on the TV. You get in the car, you put it on again in the car. You, you're constantly hounded by this terrible news about stuff happening around the world. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I feel very connected. I read a whole bunch of different media outlets on a regular basis to make sure that I'm informed and it's my job to be responsible and to be informed but not to allow myself to be inundated and ground down by the constant bad news because then you just lose sight and 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 if you let that happen you can't be a good boss you can't be a good friend you can't be a good partner you can't be a good parent or uncle um you have to take responsibility for the amount of noise and bad news that you let in Absolutely. Listen, I cut cable off in 2000, 2001. Yeah, I would have it on the, you know, the news in the background. My office is in my home, but I would have the TV on in the living room and I would hear little bits and snippets and go, oh, what's going on? I realized at some point that I was clutching my stomach a lot. It was killing me, just the, the noise in the background. And then I did a little bit more research because I wanted to know what was I really hearing? And it didn't matter what channel I changed. It was all the same garbage. It's like they have a stenographer that just passes around from station to station. It's awful. So I get my news, but I, I use critical thinking skills when I'm absorbing this news, but I don't get it from the legacy media. Never will again. I think that's good. Good. Wise, wise words. Well, it hurt my tummy. <laughs> I was eating a lot of tums. We need to listen to our bodies, Denise. You know, it's yes. so easy to get disconnected. You know, you feel nauseous or you've got a headache or, you know, you're, you're struggling with something. Well, your, your body is telling you stuff. Exactly. And it was. I mean, I realized that I was literally walking around with my hand on my stomach going, what the heck? That was the heck. And I just got rid of it. So you talk and I think you just referenced it, that the idea of being flexible and nimble and open to change is really emphasized in the book. How do you believe creating a culture that fosters new ideas and thinking can help businesses not only survive, but thrive? Because you're the boss. Yes, you absolutely are the boss. But you said something else that is so important. You must listen. Yes, that's right. And, you know, in my industry, everybody is an expert in TV. We all watch thousands of hours of TV every year. We don't necessarily all know how to produce it. That is a craft that you have to learn. But we're all expert at what we like and what works and what music we think works really well with an action sequence or what shots look amazing or what actor we particularly rate. Um, so it behoves us in my industry and I think in any industry to listen to your people, whether they're the receptionist or the cleaner or the person who just does the, just I say, who does the editing or the person who is developing the ideas or indeed starring in the lead role. So I think it's very important to have this open mindset that great ideas can come from anywhere. 
And of course, in my industry, there, as I said before, there are many, many young people coming up to the ranks who have these extraordinary new ways of seeing the world, just, you know, come out from, from school or come out of university and they're breaking in and they look at the world differently. You know, we didn't have TikTok when we were growing up. TikTok is now this incredibly powerful, entertaining force of content. Um, so we would be foolish not to listen to the whole range of people. And you know what? Very big companies uh, can get into the mindset that, you know, only the, the bosses know. And oh, well, we've always done it this way. We, we, you know, we don't want to try a different way because our way works. As soon as you think like that, you're basically signing your own death warrant because change is inevitable. And if we don't change, we die. So when I was touting my book around, it was quite interesting because I saw a number of publishers and um, we did actually get two offers, which was nice. And the one I went with was Ashet, who were big. They're like top three. They're in Boston and London. And they said to me, you know what, James, what we really like is the fact that it's very unusual to write a risk management book coming from the world of entertainment. You know, who'd have thought? What a kind of weird combination. But actually, it kind of works. Because in my industry, it's a lot of independent, smaller producers based, you know, in, largely in the big cities, New York, Los Angeles, some in Chicago, some in D.C. Um, and we are used to working on very tight margins. We're used to pivoting when something doesn't work. We drop it and we move on. We are passionate about our ideas. Ideas come first. But if this idea doesn't work, we'll drop it and we'll try something else. So actually... Our sector is very fleet of foot and nimble. And it actually is a good idea for larger companies to try to build a mindset in where let's have regular brainstorms. Let's invite a wider group of people into the room. Let's have our ears open. And if somebody says that's boring or I wouldn't use that product or, you know, we've been doing that for 20 years, we've got to try something else. Or indeed, look at the competition. You know, we used to dominate this space and now somebody else is coming in with a very disruptive new idea. We've got to listen to that and we've got to respond. We cannot sit back on our laurels. So that's, for me, you know, the absolute essence of, of successful business and actually success in life. I feel really sad when I hear, you know, older people in their 70s and 80s saying, oh, you know what, I don't want to have a smartphone or I'm not interested in the, in the internet. It's like, well, you're missing out on so much. Let's learn from the next generation because they can teach us incredible things that will make our lives richer. Absolutely. Right now, the big talk in, in my particular industry is AI, artificial intelligence. Absolutely. And I'm hearing a lot of people saying, oh, my God, I'm so afraid of it. It's going to take over humanity. No, it's not. I, and the only thing I can come up with, especially if I'm talking to an older person, I remember my mom, we tried to get her a couple of computers and bless her heart, she would just punch any old button. And of course, malignant software would take over and we'd have to replace something. So finally, she said, I don't think this is for me. But I remember telling her and other people say, you know, if you're worried about AI, think about when you got your first computer. It scared you. Mine did. It scared the bejeers out of me. I didn't know how I was going to break it. I knew I was going to break it. I just didn't know what it would take. And, you know, when you get that first computer, you're nervous, you're worried, you don't know what it's capable of. It's capable of what you tell it to do. You are in charge. And I wish people would pay attention. You're in charge. Don't panic. Think as well, um, education 
um, I know this is important to you. Um, education is very important. So AI, of course, it's already here. It's in all our smartphones. As soon when you it's take been a photo, for a long time. This is nothing exactly. new. It's not. It's not coming. It's long since come. It's well and truly surrounding us now. Um, but I do believe in training. And again, this is some. This is in the book. I have repeatedly gone back to college, even through my professional career. I went and I did a, a period of study at the business school in Oxford. And then I did a, a period at the, biz, at the grad school in Stanford. And then I've actually just done a six week course on AI at MIT. Um, and um, I went on to that course because I thought, you know what? I'm excited about AI. We are using it a bit in my industry, primarily for distribution, not really for ideation yet, but that's probably coming. Of course, we've had a year of strikes in Hollywood with obviously, understandably, actors and writers fearful about what AI is gonna to do to their careers. And I thought, you know what, I need to learn. So I signed myself up and it was a six week online course and it was really, really full on. I have to say it was a lot of work. And the assignments I had to do every week were pretty staggering. But anyway, I passed and I came through, so I'm pleased about that. But by leaning in to the fear and learning about it, it's like you were saying, I'm not frightened of AI now. I'm actually really excited because when I, AI um, is brought in to uh, empower human beings, it's going to make us so much bigger and stronger and better than we can be on our own without them. I agree with you. And I do use it. I will use it often because I'm not really a writer. I'm a thinker and I'm very creative and I can build websites in my sleep. I've been known to build them while I'm cooking a gumbo. That's just the way my brain works. <laughs> but writing, you know, I think, okay, I'm going to write this article. I'm going to write this book. And I open up a blank page. It's an epic blank page. And my brain just says, mm, I don't think so. So I will go to AI and say, give me a couple of ideas. And it gives me a couple sentences and off I go. It just, you know, got my brain out of the fudge state and into the molten chocolate state, if you like. But it helps me think. Fantastic. That's a really smart way of using new technology. I love it. Well, I don't want to look at a blank page. It's time consuming and it's really annoying, but it does help. So like you, you know, I suggest that we as humans find every single way we can to make ourselves better, smarter, more capable. And there's so many ways. You don't have to sit in front of the TV to do any of that. Yes, there are great shows. Yes, there are great movies. Yes, there are great books. But you need to find other ways to make your brain work. I that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes I just get to talk and I think, what did you just say, Denise? I don't know. What did I just say? Okay. So we were, we were in chapter one and then why don't you kind of take it chapter by chapter and hit the high points? Because I know we have 16 different chapters. And as I mentioned to you in the green room, I really do want to invite you to come back because I know there's so much in this book that I need for you to share. We're not going to make it in an hour. Thanks, Denise. I appreciate that. Of course, I'd love to come back. Um, yeah, there are 16 chapters. Um, I think a really important one um, is lead with calm purpose. Uh, I think it's very tempting, and you did touch a little bit on it before you experienced this, and so did I. I encountered people recently during the pandemic who were in, in leadership roles, whether it was in a business or indeed a high school or you know, in a bunch of different environments, who just went into panic mode. 
And they either completely shut down and buried their head in the sand in fear, or they started freaking out and basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater and cutting and sacking people and, and um, you know, firing everybody and, and cutting back everything. And that just created a total sense of panic and made things much, much worse. What is really important is to, when I say lead the calm purpose, get a hold of yourself and present yourself in a way to your team, which is credible and authentic, speak the truth. But at the same time, you don't want to be spilling everything. You don't want to be oversharing. I'm really not a big fan of oversharing. I think it can actually be quite destabilizing for people if they think their boss is having a nervous breakdown. Not that I was, thankfully, but I had a few sleepless nights. Um, save the oversharing either to your family or indeed your therapist or a very small number of your key leaders in the team. And it is important to have two or three other leaders around you with whom you can be candid and say, actually, today I'm having a really difficult day or I didn't sleep well last night. It's important to have a couple of people in your leadership team with whom you can be honest in that way. But when it comes to the wider team, and we've got several hundred people working for us, they didn't want to hear me freaking out or saying, you know, the business is going to, is going to collapse tomorrow. Um, what good is that going to do? It's going to make them freeze. And that's not what we needed. We needed people to roll up their sleeves and start coming up with clever new ideas. I also think it's important that, you know, I spoke to certain people online. We were all online, weren't we, in, in March 2020. I spoke to some people who would turn up and they would just look a mess. They, you know, appearances are important. They would, they, they look frazzled. They hadn't dressed properly. They were maybe wearing their pajamas. They just looked like they were living a nightmare, frankly. And again, that does not instill confidence. I thought it was really important, and I had a bit of a joke actually with my number two, who's a very brilliant uh, woman, chief operating officer called Laura. And she and I made a bit of a joke that every morning we made sure we dressed. We had, you know, the haircut looking smart. My beard was clip properly um wearing you know something nice um and we joke that we even put on you know she likes to wear cologne she put cologne on before jumping online <laughs> and you know what it was a mindset again it was like setting yourself up for success i always think you know dress for where you're headed not for where you come from so um Again, that was just, it's, it's a small detail, but it's just a way of presenting yourself. Similarly, the background in your, on, in your uh, online persona, you know, there were some people where you just think, my goodness, they, you know, they live in a bit of a, bit of a dump, you know, they've got things everywhere and, uh, you know, there's sort of trash on the floor and there's papers everywhere and maybe they've got, you know, gazillion books behind them and they're all really chaotic. These are messages that are very important. How do you want to present yourself to the world? Do you want the world to believe that you're on it, that you can be trusted, that if something difficult comes along, you're going to respond with calm purpose? Or do they think you're going to be a bit of a basket case and your environment and your appearance reflects that? So exactly. um, I'm saying it with a sort of bit of a smile on my lips because it might sound kind of irrelevant, but actually I think it's really important. It is. And you just said something that I, I made a note to, to write as you said that, you know, the smile. I'm audio only. I've always been audio only. There are no pictures of me on the internet. There never will be. I'm a highly committed introvert. I'm not shy and I don't have any, you know, filters, but I need to be alone a lot of the time. But I've always tell people, I can tell when I'm speaking with you on the phone, 
what kind of mood you're in. If you're smiling, if you're happy, I can tell. I don't have to listen to more than two words and I can tell that you're going to either annoy the bejeebers out of me or it's going to be my job to say, knock it off. <laughs> can we just get a little bit nicer here? <laughs> yeah, Smile. It makes a huge, huge difference. I, th- I completely agree. Um, something that I think is important to say is that you know, business is not a PL. It's not about shifting numbers around. Business is a community of people. And you will t- you will attract good people to come and do their best work for you if you treat them with warmth and respect and humanely. And then people are extraordinary because they will roll up their sleeves and they will come up with ideas that you'd never thought possible. They'll work in the pandemic or credit crunch or other crises all the hours that God sends, and they will come up with incredible support mechanisms that will help you as a company survive. So warmth, kindness, humanity are so important leadership skills. And yeah, you're right. Even if you feel a bit crummy today, try and smile, try and come with warmth, try and find something positive in the day. And you you put that out and you will get it back in spades. You know what I do when I'm getting ready to get on a podcast, because believe it or not, I still have a bit of audience anxiety. Nobody's going to see me. We're just going to be having a conversation. But I, and I mentioned at the top, I get a little bit nervous because I get to interview people like you, some amazing people from all over the world. And I think, geez, here I am 15 miles from the Gulf of Mexico. Nobody knows who I am. If you saw me in a Walmart parking lot, you wouldn't know who I was. And here I'm pretending to be this big, famous podcaster. I, you know, It's imposter syndrome, and I get it. So what I do, and I, I got this from a TED Talk some years ago, and I've still done it, is a gal named Amy Cuddy. And she talks about body language. I'm sure you've probably seen her, Amy Cuddy. And she does what, and I do it. I stand up when I'm getting ready to get on the phone with you or the, the line with you. I stand up. I do my Wonder Woman pose. I take a deep breath and off I go. So I am Wonder Woman. It works. Fabulous. Love it. So what are some of the the key principles of leadership that you think are the most important? We've got 16 chapters and we will get through them. What do you think? And I know you talked about the importance of a constant state of preparation, investment in technology. That's important. Disaster recovery. But what we didn't talk about, James, is horizon scanning for potential issues. That's absolutely essential. And, you know, you do as a leader need to remain uh, aware of what's happening in the world and aware of trends and new new things that are happening. One thing I will say is that if you surround yourself with incredibly bright people, not be threatened by them, but see them as people who can give you strengths, then you suddenly, you don't have two eyes and two ears. You have a whole host of them because you are surrounded by very smart people who like you will be scanning the horizon, looking for opportunities and change and things that we can bring in that maybe we haven't thought of. So there's a really important chapter in my book called Gather Your Generals. And I've encountered people who have been frightened of hiring smart people because they think they're gonna eclipse them or they're gonna make them look bad. And I did learn quite early on in my career, because I've been running my own company now for 20 years, that after the first couple of years, I needed to bring in another executive producer to produce some shows, because I just couldn't do everything myself. And in the first show that came out, 
his name, you know, the credit, which credits are important to us on our shows, came up first. And I had a sort of pang. I thought, oh, hang on a minute. So I've been sort of trounced of my position. And one of my colleagues said to me, look, James, he worked, he's worked really hard. He merits the credit. He's working for you. So he's not a threat. You don't need to worry about that. And also what logo comes after his name at the very end of the show? Well, it's your company at that time. My company was Leopard Films. So actually the net result is while you're paying credit where credit is due, you're going to make him feel good as you should. And two, it's only going to make you better because he's working for the company and your company's name logo is on the end of the program. So it's going to build you and build you up and build a group. So that for me, this was like 20 years ago, was a really transformative experience. And since then, I've brought many incredible people around me into this much larger group. And actually, one of the things that we did in the middle of, um, well, right at the very beginning of the lockdown in March 2020, is um, one of these very clever people, who's one, I've got like 20 business partners in the group. One of them came and said to me, James, you know, there I was sitting in front of my computer at home, and there was he sitting at his computer at home in March 2020. And he said, James, this must be incredibly stressful for you. Why don't we set up a COBRA team? Now, COBRA team is an emergency response team. It's, it's a term that's used by the British government in times of crisis. So why don't we bring together a COBRA team that should be really small and tight, but a place where we can talk really safely and securely about the difficult stuff. And I thought about it overnight. I always like to make a, a, a night's sleep. I woke up the next day, I thought, actually, this is a really good idea. And I brought together my head of operations, my head of communications, um, uh, one of my legal team, um, one of my executive producers, and my head of HR, all of whom are very strong, powerful people. And a key attribute, in addition to them having, having a lot of skill, they're very good at their job, a key attribute is they are not yes people. They are people who are able and willing to say no to me and anybody else. So they speak the truth. And one of the things that came out very quickly in that meeting, talking about scanning the horizons, is that Nick had spotted some months uh, previously, you know, what was happening in, uh, first of all, China, and then when it hit Italy, we saw those terrible scenes from those hospitals in Italy in February. He had started commissioning programming uh, to, to be produced way, way, way in advance. In the event that we did get shut down, there would be programs on the slate, the programs that we could edit. I got home. Another of my colleagues had decided that what he needed to start to do was to look outside the box and see where on the world could we film where lockdowns were lifting and where in the world could we not film where countries were going into lockdown. We do a lot of international programming. So he had started the process of working with local film crews to produce primetime American and UK TV. So when lockdown hit, and we have a huge show in the US called House on International, it's on pretty much every day on HGTV. It's a very, very popular uh, top 10 show. And, um, we film that show on all continents every single day of the week, all year round. And we have several hundred people working on it. So it's a major employer and it's very, very popular with millions of people in the US and it sells all around the world. Now, of course, when COVID hit and everything was shut down and air, airplanes were grounded, there was no way we could produce that show. 
And if you don't produce that show, as I said earlier, you have no income and suddenly you're looking at possible layoffs and that's not an option. So we looked at, uh, I went back to the Cobra Group, looked at what Nick had been doing, looked at what my other colleague Henry had been doing with his uh, international crews. And we thought, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to start and set up a, um, a track between New York and London where we're going to track all over the world where is it possible to film and where is it not possible to film as you know one lockdown opened another one closed another one opened another one closed so we discovered that you know in in sweden you can't film this week but in south korea you can in guatemala they're just about to open up how can we find local crews in those countries train them up to produce primetime american television and I've got this incredible executive producer who's based on the East Coast, who at the time was pregnant, so there was no way she could fly, even if the flights were going. And she then basically got online. She used WhatsApp. She used FaceTime, every possible technological method that she could get her hands on. And she started training up crews all around the planet to produce primetime American TV. Now, of course, this was in March. In April, the first edit was due to come through, and I'm executive producer of that show. And my heart was going, with a, with a, with a, what's it going to look like? Is it going to look like primetime, high production value, American TV or not? And within 30 seconds, I thought, I can't tell the difference. They have done oh. this incredible job. She's directed all of this. She was, she was directing action sequences using drones, using WhatsApp. And I could not tell the difference. So what's the outcome? Well, we scanned the horizon opportunities that were completely outside the box. I leaned on my senior team who had brilliant ideas that I had not had, and we brought them to action. And now here we are several years later, still producing House Hunters International. It's a, still a major hit. And we have a hundred crews working in a hundred different countries around the planet who we have upskilled to produce primetime American TV. It's much better because now my team coming out of New York and London are not permanently living with jet lag. And of course, it's much better for the environment because we're not cranking up hundreds of thousands of MRs every year using airplanes all the time. So it's actually a really transformative process, but it requires complete open-mindedness and smart people scanning the horizon and being willing to put ideas on the table at the, the beginning were quite startling. And then for us as a team to implement. I have to ask James, I've been listening to this and I stopped scribbling, I was so fascinating fascinated have you created a documentary to let your american audience know that this is what happened and this is how you kept bringing them excellent shows i think they would be fascinated well i wrote the book to me <laughs> it's all in the book <laughs> yes but it's a book i haven't thought of that but you've got me thinking. I, I will listen to you I'm giving you homework. So we're talking to our audience. We're talking about when he says, gather your generals. If that's on page 37, it's chapter four. And it's it's a great, I'm, I love this conversation. So, and you include all of your, your generals and unexpected dividends. You said this, when you empower your generals, you will be stronger. Very, very true. Okay, where would you like, oh, and the mass Singers, that's a... Is that UK or? or... Yes, yeah, so we do the oh. UK version. We do the UK version of it. But again, in, that was an example. For example, um, I, I will tell you a little story about that. 
um, we were one of the first to spot this extraordinary entertainment format in Thailand, um, before that in South Korea. And we picked it up for, you know, a few thousand dollars. And at the time, nobody wanted to commission it. It was like, well, this is too crazy. You know, celebrities in outlandish costumes singing and you have to try and guess who they were. But we were like, no, 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 but it's really big in South Korea. And now it's in Thailand and it's probably going to come over um, over here. So we took it around, first of all, in UK. And everyone was like, no, it's too mad. You can't touch it. And then we said, well, look, Fox have just picked it up for the US. And they're like, oh, OK, well, that's time. Anyway, Fox picked it up for the US and produced it, and it became the biggest entertainment launch in 10 years of Fox Entertainment history. At which point we went back to all the buyers in the UK, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky, and everybody wanted it. <laughs> so it became this huge sort of auction. And ultimately we did go with ITV, which is a kind of somewhat equivalent to Fox. It's a big family entertainment network, and it really made sense to produce. Um, but again, you know, there we were in March 2020. We were you know, we've got this huge juggernaut hit. It's a huge hit all over the world. And got major A-list celebrities flying in all, from all over the world, both to star in it and also to be on the panel, including Ken Young, who you probably know, and many, many, actually many A-listers from Hollywood. Um, and we were told in March 2020, you can't produce the show. It's not going to happen. And we were like, well, you know, one, the audience really badly needs to be entertained. Everybody's sitting at home feeling kind of miserable. They need to be entertained. And two, we're a business. If we don't produce, we won't be able to keep the doors open. So what I did then, and this is about being very practical, is I brought my team around the table and said, we have to come up with absolute watertight protocols to be able to get out there and film, to first and foremost, keep our people safe, keep all of our production staff safe and keep our A-list celebrities safe and find ways to get out and film again. Now, of course, The Masked Singer was shot in a giant studio, normally with hundreds of audience. We also at the same time had a big scripted drama uh, for the BBC, which again, you know, there's lots of interaction, people in, in uh, you know, sharing um, facilities, people eating together, people sometimes sleeping in, you know, close quarters in different hotels on location, people jumping in and out of, you know, location cars and what have you. All of these things were impossible because everyone had to be at least, you know, um, uh, keeping uh, sh sheltering from home, ideally, or in, in very tight bubbles and keeping protected. So my legal and commercial team came up with the most incredible hundreds and hundreds of protocols to make it possible to film. And at the time, ITV and the BBC and Discovery and others said, there's just no way you can do this. And we're like, yeah, we can and we will. And we absolutely will guarantee that our people will be safe. So we spend a lot of time, and then talking about collaboration, we shared our findings with our colleagues. Everybody was really willing to share. And we put together this incredible document. And then we got out on the road and we filmed a major drama series for the BBC. We were the first out of the gate. We filmed uh, a whole season of The Masked Singer. And we had all of our panel, major celebrities, uh, all separated by giant perspex screens. We had a very tiny uh, uh, crew of camera and sound in the studio, all wearing masks. Uh, we took handles off all the, all the toilet doors to make sure that people weren't touching the same toilet door handles. 
We made sure that there was no food sharing, that food was being brought in and out in these tiny pods and bubbles to make sure that people were not being contaminated. I mean, Denise, I cannot tell you, it was a major, major headache, but it was possible. And you know what? We produced those two shows. We were the first out of the gate with both. We kept all our people safe. None of our celebrity talent, none of our, our production crew got sick. And we demonstrated that, you know, when people pull together and they're practical and pragmatic, you can make these things happen. That's amazing. What was the other show that you were producing at that time? Um, well, another big show is we have an extraordinary guy called David Attenborough. I knew it. He's yeah. in the book. I love David Attenborough. Who's, who's, Denise, he's 94. I mean, I he's, he's an absolute, you know, global treasure for the environment and, and natural history. And he really wanted to make a show with us uh, because we had just recently dug up this um, very large part of the central UK where we found mammoths, um, ancient woolly mammoths from prehistory. And David, who is such a trooper, you know, he loves his work, was absolutely adamant that he wanted to produce this show or, or star in this show. But there was no way that one, we could get insurance for him because he is old. Um, and uh, anyway, it was the time of COVID. So what we did is we set up a studio for him in his garden and he has a garden shed and we were able to um, turn it into basically a remote studio and he was able to produce all of his commentary, all of his links to a lot of his recordings, his interviews and stuff from the, from the bottom of his garden and he absolutely loves it and he still is using it now. So again, it was just an opportunity to think laterally, think outside the box, protect your people, and then people come up with amazing ideas. They really do. You know, it's when I first started my business, probably about the same time you did, it was about 20 years ago, and there was really nobody to teach me how to do anything, and I'm not teachable anyway. I fight with my nav system. She is not the boss of me. So you can imagine <laughs> I was constantly running into walls. And I, it finally occurred to me that I was my own bottleneck. I was not hiring people who were better than I was. Once I figured that out, full steam ahead. It's interesting. Listen, we are running out of time. I think we have about five more minutes. And I definitely want you to come back. So what... What would you like, what chapter would you like us to learn from right now? Uh, well, if we, if we say, I mean, we've talked a lot about communicate, communicate, communicate. That's an absolutely essential part of leadership. But perhaps, um, perhaps the one we should end on, which is very important, which is in the middle of the book, which is protect your cash. You know, you do, you do have to be practical in the middle of a crisis and you have to imagine that the worst may happen and there may be no income coming in. And... The first and foremost, the first thing you, you need to do is you make the decision that you're not going to let your people go. And I learned that from the very brilliant entrepreneur, David uh, uh, Richard Branson, uh, obviously Virgin Atlantic and all the other Virgin uh, businesses. And this was in the middle of the credit crunch. And he wrote a big piece in The Times saying, in a crisis, it's very tempting to just dump your people, but actually you must keep your people, but you may not have the cash to be able to pay them in full temporarily. So what do you do? Well, the first thing is you have to make cuts yourself. And I immediately took a pay cut in March, 2020. You have to lead from the front. I invited my senior team to do the same. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Some decided they wanted to just delay some payments, but I accepted all of their decisions. And then I brought my people in a room and I did this 
back in the in the credit crunch in January 2009. And I did it again in COVID. And I said to people, look, we're going to protect your jobs. We're not going to let you go. But we may have to renegotiate temporarily some of the tasks that you do. And I'm not going to ask you to do things which are outside your comfort zone or, or you're not skilled for. But if you are now, let's say, a showrunner, I might ask you to be a producer. Or if you're a producer, I might ask you to go in the edit and do some editing. Or if you're an editor, I might ask you to come back and do some development of new ideas. And alongside that, I'm going to ask you to be 25% more creative. We've got to think outside the box. We've got to come up with clients who are behind. We've got to think about ideas that maybe previously we would have thought were a bit crummy or, or channels that maybe we were a bit snobby about, didn't want to work for, but they have money or they're commissioning, working with brands in a new way, doing branded entertainment. So we went through the business, and I did this with my senior team, with my Cobra team, my generals, and we looked at every single line in the business and it was like open heart surgery disease. And this is where it gets painful. Um, it's not easy doing this stuff because you have to look, you start with your own salary and then you start going through every single line in the budget and think, how can we reduce that? How can we, could we negotiate to do, you know, part-time part with somebody? We're not gonna let them go, but might they consider going part-time? How can we reallocate these people to, from doing one thing to doing something different? How can we make sure that we're not spending money where we don't need to? Um, and that that open heart surgery is actually, it's painful, but it is actually quite healthy for the business because what it does is it obliges you to look very, very closely at every single dime that you are spending and work out, is that absolutely business critical now and will it be in the future? And we found actually, for example, coming out of the credit crunch, that having done our open heart surgery then, we realized there was some fat on our business and some, some spend things, you know, when you're doing well, you sometimes don't pay so much attention, but you know, there is that old expression, you take care of the nickels and dimes and the dollars will take care of themselves. And it's so true. You want to be really, really mindful of the pennies because then the rest will follow. So I think it is, it's a difficult chapter and it was quite hard to write, uh, but actually you have to be practical and you have to be willing to do open heart surgery about your cash flow to make sure that you're okay now and that you will be stronger and fitter in the future. And you say in here that you need to prioritize profit. Quick question. Once you cut the fat and so many of us did, and sh we should do it anyway, did you stay fat free <laughs> or did you kind of let some of it, correct, you know, kind of creep back in? Uh, we try on a, on a regular basis to be really practical and pragmatic about our spend. I mean, it's madness having huge overheads. I've never been a believer in having huge swanky offices, flying around in you know first class jets and private jets and all that stuff and super expensive cars. And um, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster, frankly. And I have many colleagues who've moved into glorious offices and next week they've got no business and they go bankrupt. Um, I think humility goes a long way in business actually. Um, and one of the things that I know, you know, there's a sort of saying, you know, when you um, have a business in the UK, you know, a lot of people say, oh, look, we're going to go to America and we're going to break America and make a fortune. That path is lined with corpses. I have so many colleagues who thought, you know, they're going to come to the US and set up an amazing business and flash the cash, basically. And very quickly, you know, I mean, I know I've got I've, my I forgot to mention my sister's a New Yorker and I've got three American nephews and nieces so I feel very much embedded in American society 
Um, you know, that kind of nonsense doesn't go down well, and it's not a good model for business. So actually, I do work really hard, and I've built it into the culture, that we are lean and mean, and we keep things tight. We do not spend loads of money on overhead. When we do well, we obviously enjoy our success, and we make sure we pay people good money, and we pay bonuses and benefits when we possibly can, when we have the cash available. Um, but at the same time, yeah, yeah, we are mindful about the nickels and dimes. You have to be. I agree with you. James, this has been an amazing conversation, and I really sincerely appreciate your company today. Before I let you go, where can people find you? How do you want to be contacted? What's the best way to reach you? Thank you. Well, I'm very um, active on LinkedIn, so please look me up at James Burstall. I love dialogue. I hope you've heard that I'm very collaborative and as I said at the start, you know, I wrote the book to be purposeful. I, I wrote it to put it out there to the broadest possible audience. I love it when people come back and say, I had this experience. Have you thought about this? Can we improve it? I went with this particular publishing house because they want us to update the book on a regular basis. I'd like the book to be on people's shelves so that when the time comes and they need to reach out for just some thoughts from somebody like me and many of the other amazing leaders in the book, the book is there and available. I wrote it to be useful. Uh, and on that note, you know, yeah, the book is is being very successful. Uh, it's available, obviously, on Amazon and, and Goodreads and elsewhere. It hit the bestseller lists on Amazon US and UK, I'm really pleased to say. Um, there's there's a paperback, there's an audio book, there are lots of versions available. But I would really, you know, most importantly, encourage people, you know, if you do have time to pick it up and read it, please feedback. I want to hear and I want to learn from you guys. I have to tell you, we're... This is December already. I'm still in shock about that. But I am actually writing a book review today. And I'm also putting this on my blog because it is, I've been writing daily. You know, these are great Christmas gifts. Gifts as books as gifts. Stocking stuffers. This is going to be in that group of books that I, th I really think are imperative that if you're in any kind of business at all, you need this book in your entrepreneurial library. So that will be up today. Thank you, Denise. Listen, thank you, James, so much. And I really do look forward to having you come back in the new year. And I will get in touch with Rich and we'll get that, excuse me, we'll get that set up. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? No, no, it was a really good, really good conversation. Um, I, I love, we've covered a lot of ground and, uh, I always come away, you know, when you have a good conversation and someone like you, Denise, you, you ask such good questions. And it's just very empowering. I love the fact that we can reach out as we do and communicate and share ideas because we're all in this together, right? Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I actually have some people that I'm going to ask if I can introduce them to you and you to them. Oh, They're in your industry here in, in the United States. And I think they maybe you guys can connect or share feedback or something i don't know, well, as you know I'm, I'm in the, i'm in the us a lot um oh. and I'll be, I'll be in new orleans in january so i'm i'm really up to that please bring it on absolutely i'm i'm thinking of somebody right now so listen to the audience as we conclude today's episode your feedback means a lot to me and if you found the show helpful please support us with a quick review on itunes your input is vital in my mission to an inspire and empower more individuals. So don't forget to hit subscribe, leave a review and share your partner in success radio with friends and colleagues. And be sure to go find this book 
and James Bristol on the web and find this book. It's Christmas. It's a Christmas book as far as I'm concerned, because this is something you can use for the rest of your days. The Flexible Method, Prepare to Prosper in the Next Global Crisis by James Bristol. James, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.